0: Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. So there are two types of people in the world. The world can basically be divided quite easily into two types of people. It is those who love to meet new people and those who do not. Most of us can find ourselves in one of those two categories and it doesn't take us too long to know that. There are some of us who see new people and are like squirrels distracted by tinfoil. a new person. Others of us, uh, not so much. In fact, I, I saw a t-shirt uh, the other day, and, and this t-shirt said, it looked like the logo of the TV show Friends, except above it, it said, no new friends. <laughs> for some of us, that's, that's our attitude. For others of us, perhaps you're like me and are a raging extrovert. Even for those of us, it can be tough to meet new people, right? Right? Meeting new people is, is often this sort of search when you meet somebody. It's kind of that search for common ground. What do we have in common? Do we, do we know any of the same people? Did we, did we maybe go to the same college? Do we root for the same teams? Do our kids have things in common? It's this sort of this dance of getting to know one another, searching for common ground, figuring things out. What's interesting is one of the first questions that we'll ask each other, and I think this is extra true of men, but one of the first questions that we will ask each other when we're getting to know one another is, what do you do? What do you do? In many ways, this question is what our culture is most interested in. What do you do? That, the answer to that question, for many people, is the most significant fact about you. So much of your identity is carried along with that in our culture. You ask somebody what they do in St. Pete, that might even tell you what neighborhood they live in. You ask somebody what they do and you can get an idea possibly of what their friend circle is. You ask somebody what they do and you learn a lot about them. And we're conditioned to sort of prize this idea. We're conditioned to believe in this idea from a very young age. That what we do is what defines us. Think about it. Remember back in third grade when they first like started like actually grading your papers. When you had to turn stuff in and get it back. What happens when you were sitting next to your friend and the papers came back? What do you do? How'd you do? (laughs) What'd you get on that one? Right? And all of a sudden, very quickly, from the age of eight, we start separating ourselves, don't we? Well, there's the smart kids. There's the know it all. There's the kid that might be in third grade with my little brother in a few years still. We start to define each other. We are hardwired. In this cultural moment to live and treat one another based on merit. Based on what we do. And so what happens, whether we're a Christian this morning or we're not. We are all sort of guilty of this culture of merit. Where what we do, what we can do with our hands or do with our brains is what defines us and gives us value. What's interesting for those of us who are Christians here this morning, is this seeps into the way that we think about God. This idea that I am defined by what I do, carries into the way that I approach God. See, what happens is, we tend to think that we can please God with our works. We tend to think that we can please God with our works and we think that that our walk with God consists of the things that we do. Not just who we believe in. So this morning, what I want to do is read you a text because I think if you're here this morning and a Christian, what your heart just did, when I said you think that you can please God with your works, you kind of in your heart just went, uh-uh not me. I know that answer. The answer to that question is, I can't please God with my works. I know that. Justin, you must be talking to all the other Christians here. But I think what happens is this is more true of us than we realize. Even if we know how to say the right answers, our hearts betray us. So we've been going through um, the chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. We're continuing that this morning. What we're going to do in just a second is that I'm going to ask you to stand up as we read God's word together. I'm going to read a passage from Genesis. Then we're all going to read Hebrews eleven one to 3. Together, and then I'm going to finish by reading uh, verses 5 and 6 of that chapter as we sort of see this story of a man named Enoch. So City Church, if you would stand with me. As I said, I'll read from Genesis 5. We'll all read Hebrews eleven one 1 through 3 together. It will be on the screen. And then I'll finish with verses 5 and 6. City Church, hear the word of God. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And now let's, let's read together. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation by faith. We understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible by faith. Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. City Church, this is the Word of God written years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So I've laid out a, a pretty big indictment on us all that we tend to think that we can please God with our works. And then I read a couple of passages about a man named Enoch. Last week we talked about how how this, this chapter in Hebrews 11 is oftentimes called the Hall of Faith, as if it is the, the Hall of Fame of great and godly men and women from the Old Testament. The funny thing is, is last week we talked about Abel, who never says a single word. Now we come to Enoch, who may be even more obscure of a character in the Old Testament than Abel. And yet he makes it onto this list of the most significant show of faith in the Old Testament. As you read through, if you were to even pull out your Bible and look for all the times Enoch is mentioned in the Bible. Enoch is mentioned in genealogies several times, once with David, uh, here in Genesis, then also in Jesus' genealogy. He's mentioned there, and then there's this kind of obscure and strange verse in the letter to Jude, where it's mentioned that he that he said a prophecy. Other than that, Enoch isn't mentioned. We have no stories about Enoch. We have no sort of uh, things that we go, oh yes, well, this is what Enoch was like. No, all we have Is these snippets of who he is that come out of genealogies. And yet Enoch makes it into Hebrews chapter 11. So we go back to the Genesis passage and we read it and we try to go, ah, what is it that's going on here? Why did Enoch make this list? What is going on? And the first thing that jumps out at us as we read this passage, probably the thing that caught most of your attention, especially if you're here this morning uh, and you're not familiar with this story, is that Enoch didn't die. That Enoch didn't die because God took him directly to heaven. Now it's easy for us to... To get distracted by that. In fact, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let's admit that's a strange thing for the Bible to talk about. right? First of all, it talks about the fact that he lived 365 years. Strange. But that was considered a short life, according to all the other things going on in this chapter. Also strange. And then Enoch never dies. There, There is a lot of weird going on in this passage. And even for those of us who are Christians, as we read this, as we sort of think through this idea of what is going on in this story, it's easy to look at that and say, oh, Enoch is, you know, the doesn't die guy. Okay, that must be meaningful. But what happens is if we focus on that, if we focus on the fact that he doesn't die, we miss the point. We skip right over. We blow right through the stop sign that we're supposed to be looking at. Because there's something else that's mentioned about Enoch twice in this genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. And it's the same thing that's then picked up in Hebrews 11. And that thing is that Enoch walked with God. Now we use this as a metaphor. If you if you know sort of Christianese, if you know Christian lingo, walking with God is a common Christian lingo way of describing our relationship to Him. But what's interesting is only Adam in the garden, and Noah after him, are the people that are explained in the Bible that are told that we're told walked with God, and Enoch. Gets told about it tw- it's told about him twice. That Enoch walked with God. That, crazier than living 365 years. Crazier than somebody not dying. The shock of this text that should be landing on us is that God was friends with a human. That God loved and cared and liked Enoch, I I always say that the the real test of friendship is, would you go on a more than eight hour road trip with somebody? Because there's a lot of you that I like. But the list of those of you that I would sit in a car for eight hours with is not as big as the list of those of you who I like. Right? That's how you know who your real friends are. Hey, let, let's drive to Asheville, North Carolina together, right? Let's let's do that, right? And if you say that to somebody and they look at you and go, eh, maybe you might not be as good as friends with them as you think you are. If somebody says that to you, that's true as well, right? That type of friendship, that sort of eight-hour road trip friendship is the kind of friendship that... Enoch had with God. That is shocking. We are conditioned by our Christian language. We are conditioned by sort of knowing the Bible answers. To not hear that is shocking as it is. The creator, the God of the universe, who made everything out of nothing, wanted to hang out with Enoch. Enoch. Liked spending time with him, enjoyed his presence. And so God is engaged with friendship with Enoch, which begs the question in our minds how? How is that the case? Why? What was it about Enoch that made God enjoy him in this way? What did our, our gut response is, what did Enoch do? Because even though we know the right answers, we still subtly in our minds go back to what did Enoch do to deserve this? This is where Hebrew help Hebrews helps. This is where it sort of comes to the rescue. It says, Enoch walked with God, that he pleased God. And how did he do that? How did Enoch please God? How did Enoch walk with God? He did it by faith. Not by works. He did it by faith. And so I know we're all quick to say, Ah, yes, that's what I believe. I believe it's by faith and not by works. I'm, I'm sure of that. In fact, I can tell you this great book I read by this eminent theologian with two initials instead of a first name. I, I, I can tell you all about these things. And yet, something else is going on. Your mouth says the right thing, but your life is screaming the opposite. Think of all the ways that you are anxiously striving to get it right. Think about all the ways that you seek to prove yourself in the eyes of God and the eyes of others. Maybe think to the way that you try so hard to be justified to those around you, to be vindicated. Think about all the ways that you tirelessly work to protect yourself and your reputation when you do these sort of things, when I do these sort of things, what I'm showing is that while I may be saying the right things about faith with my life, or with my mouth, my life is showing that seated deep in my heart is still a root of unbelief where I am still in need of being reminded. Let me take a second to to put this another way. What makes a mature Christian? Think about about somebody in your life you go, ah, yes. That's a mature Christian. Hope you have somebody in your mind. Now, now, Now think about why you say that is a mature Christian. Here's my guess. My guess is that when you think of that person maybe it's maybe it 's kind of your grandma sort of a, a an older figure in your life or your grandpa maybe it's maybe it 's a friend who who may have discipled you while you were in college, maybe it 's a, a former pastor that you knew, uh, whoever it is, you probably think that they 're a mature Christian because of what they do, or maybe maybe you're maybe you 're better than that. Right? Maybe, maybe you're a more thoughtful Christian and you think that that person in your mind is the most mature Christian because of how much they know about God and the Bible. We can all say that we believe by, that pleasing God is only by faith. Yeah. But this idea of what we do of merit is still wrapped around our hearts. It's still wrapped around my heart. You see, what's interesting is the Bible does tell us that there are things to do in our Christian walk. There are Christian disciplines of prayer and fasting and Bible reading and, and the sacraments. But the difference that God is talking about here is the difference of motivation. Let me ask you guys a question. If I were to, to go home today and, and the kids make a mess of the house, well, that's, that's a given. Um, when the kids make a mess of the house and my wife is out shopping like she does many Sunday afternoons and I decide, ah, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make our bed. Right, which I don't care about, but my wife likes. Right, like if you you're gonna get back into it in like you know twelve hours, what's the point? I know that's totally the most like like dude thing to say. I understand that, but it's true. Um, but but like I'm gonna make the bed, and then I'm gonna like do all the dishes, and I'm gonna like like I'm gonna do like the pots and pans that are kind of like sitting with some like warm water in them that like every night you're like. Eh, that needs to soak some more. I'm going to do all of those pots and pans and then I'm going to like vacuum the house and then I'm going to get like the wet swiffer out and I swiffer around the house and I I mean I clean that thing spick and span, which is my wife's love language. Like that's my wife loves a clean house. She loves when you do things for her and I do all of those things for her. Am I loving my wife? You won't you know that I'm asking you this because I'm tricking you. That's how it sets up. On the one hand, yes, I very much could be. But here's something else you need to know about our house. My wife takes care of the finances because she is a thousand times smarter than I am. And you know, Friday, that new iPhone drops if she comes home and she says, Wow, babe, look at you. You even got the nasty pot. Way to go get in the nasty pot. The house looks great. Everything is good. And I'm like, yeah, no, I love you so much. Oh, hey, by the way, I was just looking at the AT&T website. Oh, boy. Not only have I not loved my wife, but I have in a very kind way manipulated her. How many of us approach God with that idea? God, I'm going to do this stuff for you. God, look what I've done for you. Look how hard I... Look at how I have served. Look at how I have taken care of my children. Look at the way that I have raised them. I am going to do it. Now, would you make this other problem in my life go away? Now, would you answer my prayers because of how good I've done this week? You see, the difference in motivation can change things. If we're reading our Bible to check off a box or try to earn God's favor, we're not loving Him, we're trying to manipulate Him. If we pray just to get what we want so that He'll give us stuff, we're not. We're not loving Him, we're manipulating Him. We're living by our works and not by faith. And Hebrews goes on and it gives us the details. It says, anyone who wants to please God must believe that He exists and that He is the one who rewards. It's showing us how to have the kind of faith that Enoch had. And it says it says at first that that he exists. We must believe that he exists, and and this is this is something. If you have an older version, um, it, it's actually it says um, anybody who comes to God must believe that he is, which is which sounds weird to our English ears. And so the translators decided, well let's let's make that a little bit more sensible. But but what they lose in that is something that all of the Hebrew readers. Would have heard when they read Hebrews 11. When it says he must believe. We must believe that he is. What it's saying is we must believe I am. What God has given himself as a name in the Old Testament. We have to believe who God is on his terms. Which is interesting because every bone in our body fights against believing in something else. Because our culture, our, our world around us, the air that we breathe, teaches us to believe in ourselves. You can do it. You, you know what? Life's going to throw obstacles at you. And you just, you just put on your big girl pants. You put on your big boy pants. And you go deal with it because you can do it. Because you're special. This is the moment for you. You got this. Believe in yourself and nothing is impossible. That's what, we, that's what we're trained to think. That's what we even think about our Christianity. Because radical individualism is in the water stream. And it affects the way that we approach God. I believe in myself. All I need is me. I don't care what other people think of it because the only thing that matters is me. And we become these, these walking silos that don't really know anybody and aren't known by anybody. And God calls us out of that individualism. Because not only does he tell us that we must believe who he is, but implicit in that is we also have to believe who he says we are. We were not created to be independent, we were created to be dependent and interdependent. We were created to need God. That we can't do this on our own. That we don't have it in us. That you don't got this. Anybody who's been a parent for more than a few weeks, if they're honest with themselves, knows this. Anybody who has walked through the hardship of, of your adult parents getting ill, knows this. Anybody who has had a tough boss, a failed relationship, so many things in our lives point to the fact that we can't do this on our own. That we are dependent. We must believe who God is, who He says He is, and what He says about us. We need to remind ourselves how do we walk with God? How do we please God? By faith, reminding ourselves again and again and again who He is, what He has said, and what He says about us. But it also says that we must remember, we must by faith, remember that He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. Now some of us, that word reward comes up and goes, ooh, I like that. I like that, I want that let me tell you something that's true in my life maybe you can relate what I want as a reward from God is actually the things that all my idols promise me I want God to just give me all of the things that, that my idols promise me. Let, me let me unpack this for you I just want God to make my life comfortable and easy that's what I want so God I believe that you're going to give me the reward and it's going to be comfortable and easy and the couch is always going to be just stuffed the right amount and the fridge is going to be always filled with just the beverages that I like and it's going to be easy and my kids won't make any problems for me and they'll quietly play by themselves when I'm keeping them and everything will be easy that's what I want. For some of you, it might not be comfort. You want God to just make sure that everything is, is, is secure for your family, that nothing bad ever happens. Some of you want God to just quietly go, yeah, I know I'm God, but I'm going to let you control everything around you, okay? Now, I'm just going to give you that power. That's what you want. That's what you want, God. That's the reward that you want. Some of you want so badly for God to just make everybody approve of you. Make your parents approve of you. Make your spouse, your boss, approve of you. What we're doing is we want God to reward us with the things that our idols are promising us. It is true of me, and I I think it's probably true of you. But what's interesting is, God does give us safety. Safety. But not in security, but not in the way that we want. God says you might walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but I will be with you. God says that he will give you his approval. But you don't have to seek it from others. God says that the comfort he gives you is not the creature comforts of this world, but the settled knowledge that you are beloved by him. When, when God gives us these things, He reminds us that He is in control, not us. But all of these are beside the true and ultimate reward that we get. When we walk by faith, what happens is more than just getting the benefits of of the security of God being with us, His approval and smile, more than getting any of that, what we get is a genuine relationship with Him. The kind of relationship where He says, I want to go on an eight-hour car ride with you. The kind of relationship where God smiles at you. Where God says to you, I'm proud of you. I love you. Well done, good and faithful servant. And we get this not because we deserve it. We get this not because we earn it. We get this because Jesus has made us fit. Jesus has made us approved. Jesus has changed our heart by faith in his death and resurrection. He has shown us love and is teaching us to love others. And this all comes by faith. And so we begin to live out of that. We begin to live as the people who God smiles on. We are secure. We are approved. We are loved and led by our good shepherd. Not because we've earned it, because He has earned it. Not because we deserve it, but because He has given it to us by faith. So the question that we end with this morning is this. What does a community form By this sort of faith. By faith in this sort of God. Believing in what God says. Living in the reward of relationship with Him. What does that look like here in downtown St. Pete? It's our chance to be a settled presence here in the city. Loving and serving others around us. It's our chance to bless and serve our neighborhood. To be a faithful presence, showing what God is like in whatever vocation or at home, wherever God has called you, you get to be the faithful presence of Christ. Not based on how hard you work, but rather because of what He has already done in your life and how you live in response. We get to live a resurrection-shaped life in all the places that we live, work, and play. We live out of the identity of what God has already done for us. And we do that by faith.